on that we have taken a break from here and there as we were going through the other series. But we just put great value in the fact that God has inspired the Word and we need to study through the Word. We hope this reflects your own pattern in your own life, that you take time to just study the Word of God and let it take you where it takes you. You know, sometimes we can develop a pattern of studying the Word of God out of our panicky moment. Life is broken for me in this category. Well, what's the Bible say about that? And then we just leave the Bible alone while we get smooth sailing and then all of a sudden the waters get rough and it gets hard again. We go, oh, What's the Bible say about this? And, you know, we only study the Bible for things that are sort of crashing into our lives. Well, there are elements of truth that are going to inform us that just come from us just making it a habit of studying the Word of God and letting it take us where it wants to take us and not necessarily into our favorite two or three topics. So we believe studying the Word that way is very important. Uh, Jeff had left off after teaching us about Jesus going to the the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And I'm going to cover a large swath of John chapter 7. And let me just read the, the first part of that from verse 10. It says, But after this, after our, pardon me, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now I want to trace through a particular element in these following passages, but I want to highlight something here that, that might escape our notice. In this setting, this Feast of Tabernacles is a, a giant festival taking place in Jerusalem where people are coming from hundreds of miles to pilgrimage for this festival to go on for many days. It would be something of the nature of Mardi Gras, Jazz Fest. It would be enormous. It would probably be best likened to a NASCAR event. You guys ever follow? Do you, how many of y'all follow NASCAR? Okay, first of all, you're wasting your lives. Only Jeff and about two others. Anybody who watches things go around and around and around in circles and considers that entertainment. I have serious concerns about Jeff knows this. I'm very concerned for anybody who feels strongly to watch that stuff. But if you ever if you ever get like a Goodyear blimp image of a NASCAR event, which is probably more entertaining than the actual event itself, there is, you know, in the infield of this giant stadium. I mean, first off, you know, we're used to sitting in a stadium where the length of it is a football field. Well, this thing's like, you know, a, a half a mile track or something. It's long, big. And you're sitting in these huge stands. There's the infield. and There's all these RVs that are there. Well, if you ever back away from this thing, like, you know, the Daytona event in Florida is enormous. Jeff, how many people go to this thing? About 150,000 people show up for this event. I mean, this is how it does the Super Bowl, right? And they're, they're camped out in this thing. It's like a week-long deal that they get there early and they bring RVs and they're in tents and it's like a giant tailgate party. Well, this is sort of the event that we have in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And people have come from all over the place and there's a buzz in the air. And when you walk from... Little group to little group, you keep hearing the name of Jesus Christ. Is he here? Does anybody know if they have they seen him? Now, 
That might sound somewhat normal for us in an information age where you can, right now in this meeting, you can access the news with your phone device. News can travel fast here. This is the first century. They don't even have newspapers. There's no TV. Nobody's checking their iPod for an update. But yet, people have come from hundreds of miles away and have collected into a central location and they're talking about one guy who showed up on planet Earth and everybody's a buzz about him. Now what's amazing here is we're still talking about him. He's just one man on planet Earth a long time ago. Why such curiosity always about this man? In your outline, there's a quote there from James Boyce, I think for a radio program he did years ago. He actually sent folks out and asked them the question, who is Jesus Christ? He says, one young woman responded, Jesus Christ was a man who thought he was God. A biology student replied, Jesus Christ is pure essence of energy. God to me is energy, electric energy, because it's something that's not known. A man told us, I think that's something you have to decide for yourself. But he had some beautiful ideas. Others replied, he is one that we look up to as our leader. He's an individual who lived 2,000 years ago, who was interested in the social betterment of all classes of people. He was well-liked. He meant well. He was a good man. Right? Today, those are the kinds of answers you would get to asking people about Jesus Christ. But one fact remains. Jesus Christ is a unique figure in human history like no one else. There is no one else in his class. And before you just accept that he's such an iconic figure throughout human history, check out who he is and where he came from, and then you're going to have to scratch your head. Look at this thought from an unknown author wrote this thought called One Solitary Life. He says, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He did not go to college. He never visited a big city. I'm not sure about that. Jerusalem was pretty big. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials for him but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing. Listen, the only property he had on earth. Can you imagine? When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he remains the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this planet so much as one solitary life.
Now, this is a bit mysterious, isn't it? You have to face the reality that it's just simply true. But why does Jesus endure in the interest of man? I mean, all of us know some historic figures. You know, it's Alexander the Great or Caesar or Napoleon or Hitler or Brett Favre, you know, whatever your greatness category is. You know, at some point, though, as you move away from their lives, their, their lives get smaller and smaller and just kind of get absorbed into the context of history of some guy way back then. As a matter of fact, most of us couldn't carry on much of a conversation about any of these guys that I just mentioned, except for maybe Hitler and Brett Favre. Other than that, most of us really couldn't tell us much about, you know, how old these guys were when they died, exactly where they live, what were their accomplishments, what were their issues, what period of history. We've forgotten most of that. These guys just made their moment in the sun, and then they're historic figures now. But Jesus Christ, he is having an impact today, actually, I'd have to say, greater now than in the moments right after his life. The impact. You know, one uh, evangelistic association says, Communist China is discovering who this Jesus is in a remarkable way. A totally indigenous Christian movement is bringing some 20,000 people to Christ every day. Worldwide, the number setting out to follow Jesus, as best they can estimate these, is about 100,000 people a day. Now, Jesus is more significant today than ever. Even though he lived 2,000 years ago and he should have long ago faded into obscurity. That ought to capture anybody's attention in the subject matter of Jesus Christ. Well, even though he's an enduring figure, some people don't want to talk about who he is. Right? Like nobody else, he's an awkward conversation piece. Like no one else. When Michael Green says, modern people in the West are embarrassed about Jesus. There's something in us that is deeply hostile to Jesus. You have only to go to a party and start talking about him. The reaction will be immediate. You will be made to feel very uncomfortable, to say the least. You could talk about Gandhi or the Dalai Lama to your heart's content. At worst, you may seem a bit odd. Why is it when the conversation becomes about Jesus Christ, the mood of the room changes? Discomfort comes. What, he's just a dude who lived in a peasant village all those years ago, right? Apparently not. Yeah, and you don't have to open your conversation up with, listen, I, I just want to create some tension right now. <laughs> I'd like for this conversation to be as awkward as possible. You don't have to do any of that. Just talk about him. And people will leave the room. You know, they've got an appointment or, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. Oh, you know, they just want away from this whole conversation. Well, why is that? Here's what I would say that makes Jesus Christ unique. He is a definer of human existence. Who he is provides the definition for who we are and how we are to live. That's what makes him unique and different than any other figure that ever existed in human history. He is the definer of human existence. See, because he is the creator. So when he is mentioned, all things have come into creation through him. Everything has its origin about him our lives are ultimately about him. There's something in our DNA, if you want to call it that, 
that knows that. So when you mention him, this definer of life, you run into this sense of I'm intrigued because who he is is going to define who I am. So some will be drawn to him because finally my life can make sense if I can make sense of who he is, then I can make sense of who I'm supposed to be. But some people don't want to be redefined. Isn't that true? I don't want to get around the guy who defines human existence because I don't know that I want to be redefined. I kind of like who I am. I like my life the way it is. So don't bring him up because, oh, I may have to think differently about life, about what's important, about who I am and who I'm not and what I'm to pursue. Well, when Jesus Christ walked this earth, that same presence permeated conversations. So when he would get into a conversation or relate to people or travel from group to group, there was a sense that the definer of life was messing with everybody's definitions whenever he would engage them. And ultimately, what you see all throughout the gospel are these clashes of conversations. Much, much of the gospel, although modern people who like to flirt with Christianity from the cheap seats really don't like to go here in their study. They like, they like to visit the passages where Jesus is going from this need to that need to this broken person to that, and he just is healing them or being kind to them or lifting them off the ground. Well, what they overlook is there is a huge portion of the Gospels that's devoted to conflict. Jesus comes on the scene of people's lives, and there's a clash of ideas, and he opposes them. And that's the Jesus of the Bible, too. So I titled this message, what did I title it? Clashing with the Christ. And I want us to see that just in this one chapter alone, there are clashes that take place. Look in verse 11 again here. First clash I want to highlight is just the clash with reason. The way we think. What we call reasonable in our thinking process. When you come in contact with Christ, he is going to clash with the things that you're comfortable reasoning. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You know, I I see three common responses right in that first encounter with Jesus Christ. Some people would say, you know, who is Jesus? Well, he's a good man. That would probably be the number one answer. The number one wrong answer, but it would be the number one answer. Others would say, no, he is not. He's leading people astray. He's damaging people. He's teaching them things that are false and wrong. But then there would be a group mixed in amongst both of those groups that would sort of not do anything with what they heard. For whatever reason, these guys for fear didn't do much. And can I just say this based on who Jesus Christ is? All three of those responses are completely inadequate. You know, when we encounter Christ, when you think about ultimately, who is he? Ultimately, the ultimate claim about Jesus Christ has got to get settled more than anything else is, is he God? Is he God that came to planet Earth? Now, you know, we can, we're living in this plural society. Welcome to postmodernism. You know, I throw out a question like, is Jesus Christ God? Our society has already infected us with the idea that, you know, wow, Keith, that is, 
that's such a big statement, you know. There's so many possibilities. I mean, just the realm of religion is just all smoke and mirrors and lots of choices. All right, let's not be idiots. Is Jesus Christ God? How many options do you have to answer me? Two. Two, only two. There's not a myriad of possibilities here. There's two. Yes, he is. No, he's not. (laughs) Right? This is not rocket science. Now, if he is, that opens a whole realm of implications for what he said, what he did, right? In that moment, if he's God, who he is now defines who I am and defines my life. It defines my future, defines my eternal hope or my eternal punishment. Who he is will define that. Now, let's suppose on the other side, we decide, no, he's not. He's not God. Okay, well, then now you can't, you can't say he's a good man, right? Because you've got a problem on your hands with him. But see, the number one answer about who Jesus Christ is, everybody wants to say he's a good man. But see, because his character and his life and his teachings don't let you put him into the category of, no, he's not God, and he knows he's not God, for goodness sake. Okay, well, if he knew he wasn't God, then he was a big con man. He pulled the biggest con of all time. Right? He's bigger than the Joker. I mean, hey, you saw Batman. He's bigger than the Joker. He's bigger than the biggest criminal who ever existed because today, people are still following him. He's duping 100,000 people a day. Nobody ought to remain quiet about that. See the other response of, well, no one's speaking up about this. Listen, if he is not who he is, then everybody ought to be very busy about releasing people. This guy's worse than Jim Jones ever was. And no one should be there and say, well, anybody, how about people say, look back at history and go, oh, Jim Jones. Well, he was a good man. He was a good man. The guy was a phony and a fake, and he led a whole bunch of people to commit their lives to something that ultimately cost them their lives. Listen, that's exactly what Christianity does. It's a call for you to have your life cost. People have been martyred for a couple of thousand years now for following Christ. So if our choice is he's not the son of God, he's not really God in the flesh, well, then he's not a good man because he either has misled people or, you know, maybe he didn't intentionally mislead them. But you know, he was crazy. He was, he was just off his rocker. He just you know, fell off, hit his head, got up thinking he was God, never recovered. And he was convinced of that, but he didn't, you know, he didn't intend to hurt people. Well, he was crazy then. And you still have a problem. Now you got people, 100,000 a day, who are following a crazy man. That's still a problem, isn't it? I mean, nobody stood back and said, David Koresh. Oh, man, you guys are right on, man, you and David. That's great. They surrounded the place with troops. So the reason dynamic of man is either he was or he was not. If he was not, Christianity is the ugliest thing on the planet. And it should never best be accepted in the community of religious beliefs. It's a hoax and a farce and phony. And everybody who's involved is to be greatly pitied and rescued from it. But don't leave it alone. Right? That's faulty reasoning. But here's our problem in this arena. Is that people just don't do the homework on their beliefs. People don't really know exactly why they believe what they believe because they just don't do much homework on it. Timothy Keller says, Skeptics must learn to look for a type of faith hidden within their reasoning. All doubt, however skeptical and cynical they may seem, 
are really a set of alternate beliefs. You cannot doubt belief A except from a position of faith in belief B. Is Jesus Christ God in the flesh? Uh, I don't believe that. Okay, you don't believe that because you believe something else. So, you know, the, the skeptic tends to come to Christianity and say, I can't believe you believe that kind of stuff. Well, the question for that person is, okay, well, what do you believe? Well, I, I believe Jesus was a good man. <laughs> you know, put him in the crosshairs. That's, that's the dumbest thing for you to believe. Okay, defend your belief to me now. What do you believe and why do you believe that? Well, I, I believe that, you know, I just don't believe there's any way that God would send people to hell. I just don't believe that. Okay, you just told me what you don't believe. What do you believe? And why do you believe that? What's the grounds and the basis for you to have a different view than that? And this, this is one of the aspects that I just love about Alpha. Because what Alpha is designed to do is designed to get people to think about what they believe. It's not just, here, shut up and listen. Here's belief, here's belief. Just shut up and listen. No, 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 don't say anything. I mean, Alpha is intended to get you to do exactly that question. Okay, well, you don't believe what was just spoken of. Well, what do you believe? And why do you believe that? And you know what? The reason why I think Alpha is so helpful for folks is because most people have never done the homework on what they believe. They believe it's because it's just what they've always believed. Kind of caught it by osmosis. They believe it because it's familiar to them. My mom and them believed it. And so they just kind of move along through life until life kind of hits them in such a way or somebody challenges them or God deals with them and now they've got to analyze their belief system to find out, I don't really know why I believe some of this stuff. And then when people begin to search, well, you know, God says, if you search for me, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. So one of the things I love about Alpha, whether somebody makes it through the whole course or they just attend a few meetings, is it begins the search process. It puts people in a mode of rethinking through why do I believe what I believe. And that's so important. Well, Jesus does that with this clash with folks. Look down in verse 14. The next thing we get a clash in in this exchange is the clash with supernatural words. You encountered Jesus and you heard him speak. It did something to you. His words were alive. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? If you look over at the end of this chapter in verse 46, after the Pharisees and the religious leaders have sent the temple guards to go arrest Jesus, they come back and they're empty-handed. In verse 46, they're saying, Why did you bring him? This is what the temple guards say. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Right? They sent them, go arrest him, bring him to us. They go, they get him into his hearing and they hear him speak. And these words zeroed in on their hearts and they left him alone. And they walked back, having not obeyed the command they had received, only because they were mesmerized by his words. They did something to him. Throughout scripture, Luke chapter 4, speaking of Jesus' words, Luke 4 verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Matthew 13 verse 54 says, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom 
in these mighty works. See, when Jesus spoke the word of God, he was the word of God made flesh. He spoke the word of God to people. Listen to what the Bible says about the word. Hebrews chapter four says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, when you met Jesus Christ in one of these meetings or on the road or in a public air place where he was proclaiming the word of God, the word of God was described in Hebrews 4. It was living. It was active. It it invisibly found its way into the inner recesses of your own heart. It judged the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. It peeled you open, so to speak. It left you feeling naked before God. Every pretense that you'd ever had before people, every impression you ever tried to make, every mask you tried to wear, you found it all stripped away and you stood before God. Your money didn't protect you. Your title didn't protect you. You were naked before the eyes of God and you had an encounter with who he is and who you are. See, the word of God is alive. And you know this, if you're in here this morning and you've encountered Christ in a saving way, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what it is to have God peel you open and speak into the recesses of your heart and identify who you are, the condition of your life, the deepest need in your soul. The word of God finds it. I mean, I can remember this just a period of time of investigating Christianity where just simple words from God, it's like that slipped past my defenses and it came through the cracks and it found a place in my heart and it began to expand inside of me and raise these questions and it began to address needs that were in my soul. This season for me was a, a season of soul hunger. I don't know why it happens at this point. I believe it's just God dealing with us. I mean, I was just a young teenager. I had spent a couple of years, you know, just even before I was a teenager, just trying to find fun, trying to, to fill my life up with some activity that, that, that seemed like this would be worth living for. So I began to experiment with drugs and alcohol and just lying and creating whatever form of entertainment I could create, whether it was legal or illegal, and finding people and relationships and running with them and hiding those things and living a false life and... All that stuff, but then there came a day one day where a very simple phrase pierced through my armor. It was simply, God, it was that track, the the track from uh, Campus Crusade, God loves you and has a plan for your life. It's just vocabulary words, right? I mean, it's God, love, I mean, look them up in the dictionary. But for some reason, these things were like heat-seeking missiles. Came into my heart and haunted me. It just stayed with me. And so I'd go back and I'd hear more. And eventually I wanted to open the Bible up and start to read it. I was curious about what it meant. Because I knew in my, there was something in my soul that was longing for something. And I knew that. I can remember laying on the bed at night. You know, listen, I mean, I, I, was, I, was, I was your recreational suburban drug user. Right. So I'm not I'm not in a gutter somewhere. You know, I haven't had a bath in two weeks. I'm strung out on heroin. I'm laying in my nice suburban bed staring at the ceiling one night. And I'm just thinking, there's got to be more to life than this. That's literally what I thought. 
had a whole series of friends that were older than me, and they were three and four years older than me, and that's where I was getting my drugs from. And, and I thought, you know, they look like they're having fun. But I'm thinking, this is all right, but three, but three or four more years of this? I mean, got to be something more. And this urging of the soul was met by the word of God that finds its way into our hearts and addresses us. It clashes with us because it's living and alive. Now, let me just say this because an interesting quote from Tim Keller in his new book, The Reason for God. He says, it needs to be said that faith journeys are never simply intellectual exercises. Sometimes we as Christians find a little bit too much obligation to turn Christianity into an intellectual, intellectual appeal alone. Now, it is an intellectual appeal because God answers the questions of the intellect. But it is not an intellectual appeal alone. See, it's not just my brain that needs to get saved. It's all of me. All of me needs to be saved. Every part of who I am. And when Jesus comes and he, you know, he informs us that he is the bread of life, well, he's, he's relating to your gut in that moment. You know, he's, he's not looking to be a science equation in that moment to your intellect. He's talking about that thing deep in your heart that escapes just mere intellectual data and longs for something in my soul. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You will find rest for your souls. Your soul encompasses much more than just intellectual nuances to where I can put God and the concept of God into some intellectual equation and spit something out. That may be one aspect of who you are. Don't over-exaggerate that, either for yourself or for somebody else. When somebody comes to Christ, it's not just their brain that needs to come. It's their heart needs to come. It's the very center of who they are with all their emotion and their affection and their goals and desires, personage, who they are. So there's more to you than just your brain, right? There's not a person in this room who's longing for another person to light a candle in a romantic restaurant and reach across and grab their hand and go, A squared plus B squared is C squared. (laughs) Nobody wants that, right? But yet to have a, a touch physically and someone say, I love you. You matter to me. You're very important to me. See, there's something in your soul that's interested in a whole lot more than math equations and scientific information. You're interested in a lot more. See, you, you don't just need to be able to put God into a test tube and the arrogance of man is as though he can climb on a higher level and view down at God from science and philosophy and figure God out. You know, that's never the way anybody comes to God. It's the arrogance of that will never allow man to come to God that way. Well, these guys, when they encountered this clash, they end up, look at the rest of this, verse 16. So Jesus answered, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own initiative or authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Right now he's calling the question there. Motives. (laughs) 
The crowd answered, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. And so their response to encountering these words, again, some people are going to marvel at the words of Christ and others are going to say, you got a demon, you got a real problem. Right? Not everybody responds to Christ the same way. Read a little bit further here, verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. I believe that refers back to the day that he was in Jerusalem and he healed the person on the Sabbath. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they're saying nothing. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Wait, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Interesting thought. Here they are on the verge of believing. Might he be the Christ? And they immediately back away. Now, why do they back away in this moment? Because of some cockamamie idea in their head. Well, no, he can't be the Christ because we know who he is and where he's come from. But where'd you get the idea that you couldn't know that? See, there was a a tradition in the minds of men at that time about the Messiah, that when the Messiah would come, he would just simply suddenly appear. He'd be a man of mystery and he would suddenly appear and be about his redemptive purpose. So he would just come on the scene. So for them, and listen, this is not, the Bible doesn't depict the Messiah that way. But they had built up these traditions and these ideas that they had passed along to each other. They had taught each other to think a certain way so that when Christ actually does come, they can't recognize him. Why? Because their traditions don't allow them to see him. They viewed Christ through the lens of their own traditions. Even back further, one of the reasons that they wanted to disqualify Christ was because he did miracles on the Sabbath. Remember, that was a big, you know, confusing point for some. Because they had taken the, the teachings on the Sabbath, had polluted them with human ideas, and had created a barrier. Now the Messiah can't even do this. Oh, well, he did it. He cannot possibly be the Messiah. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. You've bought into these human ideas, these traditions of men, and the traditions that you believe are keeping you from seeing Christ. Everywhere Christ went, there was a constant clash between truth and traditions. Truth and traditions. And then they had, they had mistaken ideas about his origins. You know, they kept saying, you know, I never did get, I mean, I guess God has purposes in this, I won't go into, but... They all believed that, well, he can't possibly be the, the Messiah, see, because he's, he's from Galilee. You know, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, it, he can't be the Messiah. Why? Well, I'm going to say it later on in this chapter. The Messiah was supposed to be born in the house of David and born in Bethlehem. Why didn't somebody just ask him a question? Where were you born? <laughs> How hard is that? Born in Bethlehem. Well, that just cleared up a whole bunch, right? But there was just this tradition for them. There were these ideas that they let permeate who they were. They became so convinced that they were right. 
that when the Son of God actually comes to earth and stands right before them, they can't see him. They keep looking right past him. Let me just warn us. This is the effect that traditions will have on every one of us. Traditions are powerful little critters. Traditions get their, their, their influence and their power in us from popularity, familiarity, and longevity. If enough people believe it, we start feeling like it must be true. If it's popular, if the right people in our lives believe it, and then a lot of people in the, in the public arena believe this, and then it, it must be true. See, just a lot of people believe it. It's got to be true. Or familiarity. Well, it's just, you know, it's just what I know. You know, I mean, just when I was raised this way, it's just, you know, it's just what I know. Or, or longevity. Well, it's just what we've always believed. Listen, none of those things make anything true. None of those things make anything true. A lot of people believe in the same things that they've always believed for a long time. That doesn't make any of it true. But it does make it effective and powerful. And Jesus clashed with these things. My question is, how many have absorbed traditional religious views with very little investigation? Why do you believe that? I mean, you know God helps those who help themselves, right? How many of y'all know that's not in the Bible? Hopefully a lot of folks. That's not in the Bible. Oh, it's not? I always thought somebody in the Bible said that. Ben Franklin said that. God helps those who help themselves. And when I look in the Bible, I find people who can't help themselves receiving the grace of God. I find a very different scenario there. But we just believe this stuff. You know, I've always heard that. Well, why did you always believe it? At one point, everything you've always believed was being believed for the first time. Right? Can you go with me there? At some point, somebody was introducing some crazy idea to you. That was the point to be careful about whether to believe it or not. Because the longer you go about believing it, the harder and harder it is for you to stop believing it. What about some of these ideas? There, there cannot be just one right way. I mean, in the realm of religion today, a lot of people all say that. It's in the news. It's in religious corridors. It's between interfaith movements. There just can't be just one right way. Who says? And we just have this tradition in us. And we just, well, I, just, I just can't believe that, that Christianity is the only way. And we actually hear that with some validity to it. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, that does make Christianity sound kind of weird. Well, could it be that it's weird not to believe that? Listen, this is, that's such a cultural thing. You know, travel to the Middle East and tell those people that there isn't, there just can't be just one way. You may not escape the country. It may be the last thing you say. Because why? Because they believe there is only one way and everybody ought to believe it. So even in our culture, our culture is just different than another culture, religiously. What about this? The basis for being right with God is your goodness. Yeah, how many people believe that? You have a conversation with somebody for 30 seconds and you try to find out the basis for how they're going to be right with God. I I couldn't put a percentage on it, but the vast majority of people are going to put it on the basis of their own goodness. But ultimately, they give a definition for why it is that God would be maybe okay with me when I get to the pearly gates. It's going to probably sound something like, well, you know, I've, I've tried to lead a pretty good life. You know, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, everything, but... Uh, I've tried to do some good things. I've tried to be responsible. You know, I mean, I know a lot of other people that are worse, worse than me. 
So I don't know. I, I, th- I think I'm, I think I'll be all right. It's all on the basis of how good I am. That's a tradition. And when you meet Christianity, it clashes with that. There's a the loud sound of things breaking and shattering and falling to the ground. And that was true in Jesus' day. How about the Bible is inaccurate and untrustworthy? That's a traditional belief. A lot of people believe that. A lot of people who have never, ever read the Bible or looked at it at all. But they heard somebody else say it, and somebody else said it, and then somebody on TV said it. Of course, I had to have made it right. And then somebody, some professor who had absolutely no biases, he's only interested in absolute truth, he taught it in front of the class. So, you know, you know, you can't trust the Bible. I mean, you know, people who, um, people who are trying to overthrow the government wrote the thing. I mean, just all kinds of, you know, where did you get that idea? Well, I don't know. I just heard it. Well, did you ever investigate why you believe some of these things? How about the way to pray is through a rosary or through Mary or through the saints? You grew up in New Orleans, you were around that one. At some point, that idea got presented to you for the first time. Did you ever stop to figure out, is that really the way to do that? See, my mom and them did that. Literally. I I had a great aunt who gave me my first rosary. It's a cool looking little thing, had a little pouch. Taught me how to pray it. So I began to pray that. See, when I was a kid and that was given to me, I didn't stop to think, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, let me check this out. I'm not sure if I should be doing this or not. Let me look up some Bible passages. I, I didn't know. Just, it was just the thing that was done. It was what my family did. It was the influence of people I trusted. And so I, you know, I never was one who kind of was into praying to the saints but praying to Mary, yes. It just made sense. You know, it's always easier to approach your mom than it was to approach your dad, you know. It just made sense to me. So, you know, go to her. She's softer, you know. The response of God the Father of Jesus might be a little bit more stern, but you could, you could probably talk Mary into some stuff. So, you know, you kind of go to her. So I was taught to pray that way. I never questioned that. But you don't find it anywhere in the Bible. You don't find anybody ever doing that. You don't find anybody after Jesus Christ is resurrected and he says, you know what? Come boldly to the throne of grace. Come to me. I'm the mediator between man and God. Come to me. You find that all over the Bible, but you don't anywhere find anybody ever pursuing a prayer relationship with Mary or the saints. These are traditions and they get in us. Believing that the real presence of God is in the Eucharist. Peter taught on that several weeks ago. That's a tradition. See, it's just, it's what's familiar to me. It's what I've always known. And a lot of other people believe it. And it's been around in my life a long time. Okay, well, I want to highlight something here in this next statement. It is often that traditions are blinding people from seeing and experiencing the good of the truth. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 15. Listen, by the way, because I know I am trafficking in religious, somewhat precious religious issues in our hearts. Uh, almost as though Jesus wouldn't have gone there with people. Like he would not have talked about anything that may have kind of, whoa, hey, 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 take it easy there, Jesus. You're trampling on some stuff that my, my grandmother believed that. You better be real careful about what you're saying right now, Jesus Christ. You don't know my grandmother. She was a godly woman. You know, that kind of comes out of us. But don't for a moment think that Jesus Christ didn't fly in the face of religion. Everywhere he went, the number one clashing group out there were religious leaders who were teaching people how to relate to God. 
So don't for a moment think Christianity should never bump into religious thinking. It should always bump into religious thinking. Matthew 15, verse 6, Jesus said, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. See, traditions will bring you into vanity in relation, vainness in relating to God. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, Jesus said your traditions are actually robbing you of the good of the truth. I remember, I don't know how long ago it was, it was, a, it was an alpha meeting that we had. There was a lady at the table, and she was very sincere, asked a question about receiving Christ through the Eucharist. And, you know, I listened and tried to just understand where she was coming from. <clears throat> and the one thing that jumped out at me was, you know, if you're really interested in experiencing the presence of God, <clears throat> then it would be very important that you seek to do it through the means that the Bible prescribes. And from the moment that Jesus Christ institutes the Lord's Supper for the rest of the scriptures, never, never is there one mention of people experiencing the presence of God through the Eucharist. But from that moment on, there are many, many references to people experiencing the presence of God through being filled with the Holy Spirit. See, I experience the presence of God through a different means. And if my tradition has me staring at the presence of God through the Eucharist, I am blind to the reality that it is through the Holy Spirit in filling me and animating my life that I experience the presence of God. So this tradition is robbing me of this truth. And that's going to be true all over the place. If your prayer life, if you're praying to the wrong people, then you're being robbed of a biblical prayer life. See, you understand why Jesus was so animated about these issues. Because they were keeping people from experiencing God and the good that God had wanted for their lives. And one of the things that's just obvious when you read through these passages, Jesus went from place to place to place to place in religious settings. This was a religious nation. And everywhere he went in this context of religious encounters, he kept turning over the status quo of religion. Here he is. Now, here's the reality. God, who is the kingpin of religion, right? Religion exists ultimately to be about God. So God has actually come into the context of religion. He is walking about everything that they're supposed to be about is supposed to be about him. And everywhere he goes, no one recognizes him. Does that kind of astonish you a little bit? Everything people were being taught about religion and Jesus would come stand in their midst and you'd have all these, you know conversation at the nascar event what is he who is he i don't know is he well he's probably a good man he's god right good man you chum around with and go have a beer after the game god you may bow down in reverence to you may find your whole life before him differently oh he's a troublemaker people couldn't figure out who he was Jesus had to tell the religious people, you search the scriptures because you believe in them, you have life. But the scriptures speak of me and you won't come to me. What's amazing, you look at the context, because this conversation from chapter 7 actually spills over into chapter 8. 
And later in chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus makes that statement about, you know, if you know the truth, you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That people go, wait, wait a minute, pal. I don't know if you studied history or not, but we're not bound up. We're not slaves to anybody. We're the children of Abraham. Wow. What a proclamation of tradition. Do you understand who you're talking to? We're the children of Abraham. And Jesus doesn't back up and go, ooh, ooh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's right. You guys are on good ground. You're the children of Abraham. Yeah. No, these would be the occasions where Jesus says, you know, God can raise up children of Abraham from rocks. Don't be so impressed. But by the way, if you really were the children of Abraham, if you were children of faith, you'd recognize who I was. You'd know who I am. But because you don't recognize who I am and you don't recognize that I'm from the father because you're of your father, the devil. Now, he broke some real shocking news to them at that moment. They're trying to say, no, 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 man. We're, we're related to Abraham, buddy. And God turns around and says, no. No, you, you don't even know who God is. Right? Look back in chapter 7, verse 28. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me? and You know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. In him, you do not know. This, this, is, this is an earthquake. You are a religious people. You claim Abraham. You claim to be Jews, Hebrew in background, related to Abraham. Can I just tell you this? You don't know God. Ow. Now let, me, let me put some modern day 2008 wheels on that thought. Whatever tradition you come from that you claim your confidence about your status before God because of that. Well, wait a minute. I grew up in Lakeview Christian Center. Really? Oh, don't think that does anything for you. You could still, you could be here, repeat back. You could tell me, I remember when we preached through that and we did that and we did that thing over there. You could be here today in this context your whole life and you don't know God. Young people, don't think for a moment because of who your parents are or because of the setting of a church that you're involved with that you believe is right on. Don't think for a moment that that makes you right on. These people thought that way. Jesus clashed with their traditions. said, no, that doesn't make you a God-knower. You go up in New Orleans and you've grown up Catholic. Most of us did. Listen, I I took great comfort in the background that I was because I was told all my life it's the one true church. It's been around the longest. And I'm Catholic. So it's just, you know, by sheer nature, I'm all right. Because just I'm on the roll somewhere. I'm amongst something that's right. I'm right. Listen, do not, do not deceive yourself. If Jesus, listen... By the way, the Catholic Church is not in the Bible. But the people of Abraham are everywhere. If Jesus could stare at the people of Abraham and say, you know what, you might be part of that group, but you don't know God. Today, he could definitely say to the Baptists or the Catholics or anybody else, you might be part of that, but you don't know God. Oh, don't take any confidence in that. Jesus clashed with human traditions all over the place. Let me hit this last one and we're going to stop. 
the clash with personal ownership. Right? When we read verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. Right? You tell people, hey, you're related to Abraham. You don't even know God. That kind of gets people bothered. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Look in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. See, Jesus' words are beginning to influence the crowd. People are beginning to believe what he's saying and who he is. And all of a sudden, the power brokers in the midst become uncomfortable. We need to get this guy off the scene. He needs to be arrested. We need to deal with him. Now, if you follow this drama, I think if you put this lens on and you follow the last days of Jesus' life, you'll have a deeper appreciation for it. I would dare say that the crucifixion was a mafia assassination. That's what it was. From a human standpoint, from God's standpoint, it was the propitiation before the throne of God. But from a human standpoint, how did it get pulled off? It was a mafia assassination. I mean, look at the elements that are involved. You've got informants, you have bribes, you have a planned abduction, you have political manipulation, you have intimidation tactics amongst the crowds, right? When, they, when the crowd wanted to cry out for somebody to be released, what did the mob do? All it took was the mob boss to look over at you and go, you say Barabbas, Barabbas, yeah, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. They didn't want Barabbas. The crowd thronged to Jesus Christ. How'd you get these people to say Barabbas? It's a mafia deal. See, if you ever traveled to Jerusalem, what you had there was a corrupted religious system. You had power brokers in the midst. You had religious leaders who had figured out a way how to make money. Remember when Jesus goes into the temple and he upturns all the tables and kicks things over? All the money changers? See, these guys had seized, they'd found a way to make money off the temple. When you got there and you arrived and you were going to bring your offering, your sacrifice, well, there'd be temple taxes you'd have to pay that you didn't realize that was going to be part of this deal. You bring money for that. Oh, well, no, that's not enough money. The exchange rate changed since last month. You're going to need more than that. There's extortion going on all over the place. You see, if Jesus Christ is the end of the sacrificial system All these guys are out of their money-making enterprise. See, I don't want who you are to redefine who I am, so I'm going to need to take you out. That's exactly what they did. They schemed a plan. Now, they didn't realize their scheme was ultimately God's scheme. That's what's so ironic about God's dealings with man. But this was a mafia hit. This was people saying... I don't want who you are to change who I am. I don't want you coming into my life and altering my life. I don't want that to happen. See, here would be the biggest clash for every one of us. When Jesus Christ comes as the Lord, he clashes with my personal ownership. You want to know why any of us hesitate or any of us are not interested or don't pursue Christ for who he is? Because I don't want to give up the ownership of my life. If he really turns out to be God then I don't get to be God anymore. And I'm not sure I'm interested in that. So you can kind of keep your Jesus. Don't bring him up. It makes me uncomfortable to talk about that. See, this is the ultimate discomfort. When somebody brings up Jesus, he's the creator of you. 
He owns all the rights to you. He has the right for you to stop doing that and start doing this. But you don't understand. I really like doing this. It's sinful. It doesn't glorify God. Well, you know, that's the thing about not being a Christian is I don't have to live to glorify God. I live for pleasure. I live for what glorifies me. And I don't want to give that up. Lee Strobel says, that's all I had ever really given the evidence, a cursory look. Just real quick, just glance. I don't want to look too quickly or too closely. I had read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my skepticism. A fact here, scientific theory there, pithy quote, clever argument. Sure, I could see some gaps and inconsistencies, but I had a strong motivation to ignore them. A self-serving and immoral lifestyle that I would be compelled to abandon if I were ever to change my views and become a follower of Jesus. Listen, Eric, you can go ahead and come. Listen, most folks who are struggling to follow Christ, they're not struggling because your argument isn't intellectual enough for them. They're not struggling because, see, they wear a white coat and have a degree in this, and they've figured out so much more, and you're so beneath my thoughts with your faith thoughts. You know, faith thoughts. Now, the, people, the reason why people don't want to submit to Christ is because they don't want him to rule over their lives. See, ultimately, this is man's posture before God. You keep your hands off of me. Don't tell me to do that. Don't tell me to stop fornicating. Don't tell me to stop cheating. Don't tell me to be honest. I'm honest. Somebody will figure something out about me. I'll lose some advantage. I can't do business that way. Don't tell me that. I don't want you ruling over me. See, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he's going to redefine who I am. And maybe, maybe today, maybe you're in a place and, and, and you're going to find yourself in this crosshairs. And I want to give you this opportunity before we close. There was a man in the Bible, the Bible referred to him as a rich, young ruler. He was influential, he was young, he had wealth. And he came to Jesus one day, good teacher. What must a man do to be saved? Jesus interestingly answers his question as a means of revealing his own heart. He says, well, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I know those. I've kept those since my youth. I don't know if Jesus went, ha, in that moment. But what he did next so, was so embarrassing. Because ultimately, here's, here's the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus just took those two thoughts and gave it back to him. Oh, oh you've kept these all your life, have you? Well, I'll tell you what, then you won't have a problem with this. Go and sell all that you own and give it to the poor, right? Go love your neighbor as yourself and come follow me. Love me more supremely than anything else about your life. Can you imagine in this moment, the response the Bible says is, this man didn't do either of those. The Bible says he walked away grieved because he wanted Christ, but he wanted his own life more than he wanted Christ. See, when Jesus comes and he clashes with people, this is the number one clash, is who will own your future? Who will own who you are? Who will define who you are? 
See, this is going to sort of permeate down into your daily living. And you may be tempted the way you want to, you just want to let somebody have it. You understand? That's who I am. You know, I'm Italian, okay? I mean, you, you get on the wrong side of me and I'm, you're going to know it, baby. I mean, everybody knows that since I, you know. Well, that's who you want to be, right? When you come to Christ, he's going to say, I don't want that anymore. See the trash can over there? Take that attitude and that way of doing things and put it right over there. I'm going to teach you a different way. You can do it this way now. Well, I don't want to do that. Right? And so I'm not just talking about, we all traffic here, right? I'm trying to rescue us from, well, well, I'd never murder anybody or, oh, you did drugs when you, I didn't even do drugs. All right. Well, how about a complaining lifestyle? He's a complainer. Right? People get five minutes with you and, and you will have complained about something. Jesus Christ comes along and says, I don't want that anymore. You take your complainer outside and throw it in the trash. We're not complaining anymore. You've got so much to be thankful about. I'm forgiving you of the debt that you owed. I'm, I'm preparing for you a place forever. I'm coming into your life. Right? You'd like to have better neighbors and you'd like to be married to the ultimate person? Here, here you go. You got me. You ought to wake up every day skipping and jumping and leaping and praising God and being full of thankfulness. So the complaining thing is over. Well, I don't know if I want him ruling over me. See, it's, it's an ownership issue. Now, if you're here today, you can have your own clash with Christ this morning. Ultimately, here's what he's after. He wants your life. Now, listen, he doesn't want anything that's not rightly his anyway. He created you. The breath that you're breathing, he gave you. The thoughts that you're capable of thinking, he owns them all. He has the rights to them. Every day that you keep them from him, you're the one who's wrong. He's right to say, come to me. Now, it's amazing. He doesn't just thump his hand and say, get over here now, jerk, thief, stole the life that was supposed to be mine. He's this tender, compassionate God who comes where you are and says, come to me. Has your life made you weary and heavy laden? Are you burdened down by life now? Yeah, I do feel that way. Well, come to me and I'm going to give your soul rest. I want you to trust your life to me completely. I don't want you to hold on to any of it. I want you to trust me completely. See, can you do that? Maybe you're here this morning and maybe in your own heart you've never done it. You can do that right now. Just take what I just said to you if it bears witness in your heart. You tell God, God, I don't want to hold anything back. I want you to have my life. I don't want to resist. God, I want you to come here in my life. I I want to give you ownership of who I am. I don't want to own this life anymore. I, I want you to own it. I want to join the many, many who have put their hope and their trust in you for all the rest of the days of their life and for all their future. Let's stand up together. Lord, when we read these passages from the Gospel of John, we find people just like us, just like us, Lord, trying to figure out who you are. And Lord, just like them, there's all kinds of things in us that who you are is bumping into. Lord, for some here, it may be traditions that they just always have thought a certain way about you. They've always thought the way to heaven was through a a certain path that that's what their family always believed. Lord, this morning, would you let your words be living and active and sharp as a two-edged sword? 
Would you pierce hearts here this morning to let every one of us here be fully convinced there's not a one of us who will ever be good enough in our own effort for a perfect and holy God. We fall short. Lord, if you would save any here this morning, it would be simply by pure mercy for you to save us because you chose to save us. Lord, remind us here, whether it's traditions or whether it's ownership of our own lives, or would you remind us the very safest place we could ever be is when our life is fully surrendered to you. Lord, the most dangerous place we ever are, vulnerable to the enemy and to the reign of sin in our own lives, is when we own even just a little piece of our lives. So, Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who perhaps for the first time this morning, they are pulling out the deed of their life, the ownership deed of their life right now, and they're signing on the bottom. They're saying, here, Lord, I sign it over to you. Every day of my life from this day forward in all all of my mistakes from the past, all the baggage I'm carrying, God, I just give it all to you. I surrender my life to you. I don't want to resist anything you have for me. Lord, I pray for those folks that this would be a beginning. This would be that place of new birth. This would be that place where your spirit comes and convinces their hearts more and more as the days go on of your intentions, your wisdom, your love. Lord, I pray for some who are here this morning who have made that decision in the past. But Lord, right now they're battling with ownership issues. Lord, there are little categories of their life that they have reached and pulled back into their own control. They want it a certain way. Lord, and you being Lord, you being who you are is clashing with who they want to be. If you're here this morning, that's where you find yourself. And you, maybe you didn't realize you've been doing that and then working hard at doing it. Right now, you to just see yourself taking that area of your life. Just picking it up and maybe putting it in a box and giving it back to God. Say, God, I thought you weren't looking and I pulled this off the shelf for myself. But Lord, I, I don't want to be in control of anything. I want you to be in control of everything. Lord, my heart has been struggling. I've been, I've been angry. I've been fearful. I've been anxious. Lord, all those things should have tipped me off that I had taken back something that needed to belong only to you. So, Lord, today, today, Lord, I want you to be the owner. Lord, I don't, I don't want to clash with you over this. I don't want to resist your will. I don't want to fight with you over this. God, I want to be surrendered. God, I open my arms to you this morning. Lord, take this aspect of who I am and Lord, you make it who you want it to be. You are the Lord. That's who you are. And Lord, I'm grateful for that. And I want your Lordship to redefine who I am. Lord, I welcome that. I don't want to be somebody different than who you wanted me to be. So God, fulfill your plans in my life. Once again, I surrender to you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you guys. Y'all have a great...